Well, hello, everybody, and welcome once again to the 360 Fascinating Conversations with Interesting People, and I'm your host, Tim Brahim, and today's guest is a very special one. If you don't know who Jesse Itzler is, um, you're going to really enjoy this interview, I can guarantee it. Uh, Jesse is a two-time New York Times bestselling author of a book called Living with Seal and another one called Living with the Monks, uh, but his career started much earlier, back in his early 20s when he was a break dancer in New York City and was the warm-up act for a short period of time for Vanilla Ice as a rapper. But from those uh, engagements, he was hired to create something quite unique, which was the NBA's theme song. So he is the author of the NBA's theme song, which is pretty cool. But it didn't, uh, it didn't even come close to stopping there. Uh, by his mid-20s, uh, he became a founder of a fractional ownership jet company called Marquee Jets. And after his second meeting with Warren Buffett, which is a super interesting story that I won't get into because the first meeting he was laughed at, but after his second meeting with Warren Buffett and Berkshire Hathaway, they purchased Marquee Jet. He then went on to found Zika Coconut Water with some of his other partners and had a uh, liquidity event in the sale of that company. Um, and uh, now he is one of the owners of the Atlanta Hawks in the NBA. It goes a little further than that. His wife, Sarah, is the uh, CEO and founder of Spanx. She recently sold that company. So her uh, business success is uh, perhaps even more so than Jesse's. It's, it's quite a power couple in that regard. Uh, but more important than all of that is that Jesse Itzler is a fascinating teacher. Um, be ready to be given some very different perspectives on life that maybe you have not pondered before. This will be my third interview with him. I'm fortunate enough to have interviewed him twice within my Leadership 360 coaching company. Uh, he has been a guest speaker at two of my events. So he and I have a little bit of a history together, which will make this you know quite cool. Uh, Jesse Itzler uh, has a unique perspective on time. He is a master of creating moments. Um, and I think that you're going to find that his energy, his enthusiasm, and his perspective is going to be um, really powerful for you. Without further ado, I welcome you to the 360 and enjoy my interview with Jesse Itzler. What is happening, man? How you doing, Tim? Where, where are you at right now? Like you, it's a different background from the last time we talked. I am in my office in uh, Atlanta, which is my home. And this is my rap wall of fame behind me. Yeah. Yeah. Let's, uh, let's dive into rap for a minute. Cause uh, in the intro, I, I kind of briefly touched on the back fact that you were a warm up for vanilla ice at one time and you're a rapper. Well, like, what, how did that all begin? Like you were, how old were you? 20 years old, 18 years old, something like that. When you started rapping. Uh, yeah, I grew up in New York and Long Island in the 80s. So right when hip hop was starting to boom and I, I was drawn into it and uh, signed the record deal when I was 21. So I, I did my demo in my college dorm room and, um, you know, got rejected by every record company. I uh, didn't have a, a, a big no contacts, no lawyer, just hustling, getting meetings. And finally, I got a deal with a, a independent record label called Delicious Final. And then you were warm up for a period of, for a short period of time for Vanilla Ice, right? No, 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 no. no. I, I did do a bunch of shows. Okay. We came out, uh, he came out before me. Oh, uh, cool. But I never, I never, I never warmed up for him. He was your warm up, dude. <laughs> <laughs> right on. So, I, actually, I, I want to 
I want to kind of spin that into the business realm to start this off. We we've had conversations before that have gone, you know, pretty deep and I intend for this interview to go there eventually, but I want to satiate the audience here a little bit with um, just some, some practical business advice from a guy who's had a tremendous amount of success over the years in a variety of different businesses, which is super cool. But I think that there's a common denominator to it, which is relationships. You know, I've, I've kind of coined the phrase over the years that the loan officer with the most friends wins and you can replace loan officer with any, you know, any topic, you know, or any, any vocation. Um, but your, your career strikes me when I, since I know your story is an embodiment of connection, uh, of networking, of, of drive and stick to itiveness and, 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 and not quitting, you know, like really putting yourself out there bravely and connecting with people. And I'd love for you to just share, just take us back to earlier in your career, a couple of things that you did that you think had a huge impact long-term on your ultimate success and all the different careers you've had? Well, I've always been good at building relationships and maintaining relationships. I've always put a lot of energy, most of my business energy into that. I'm a big believer that people buy into people uh, more than products. And they, if you can get people to root for you, they'll stick with you in good times and bad times. And um, so I've always invested a lot in that. I've always invited people to different experiences that I'm, that I have, whether it's a race or a cold plunge or the polar plunge, or, you know, if there were 10 seats at a table, I would fill them up with 12 people. But it, even in my twenties, when I had nothing, um, I remember I would write 10 handwritten letters a day and I would mail them out to people. It could be, Hey Tim, thanks for having me on a podcast. There's 8 billion people, man. And, and you chose me today to be on your podcast. And, you know, that means a lot to me. They were always one-way correspondence. I never asked for anything in return. They were always, you know, one way. They still are one way. I never really ask for anything. I try to deliver stuff. I try to never say no to things I, and deliver everything and, and not ask for a lot. But I send 10 handwritten letters a day. I spent about, about 3,000 handwritten letters when I was like 22 years old. And, and I planted those seeds and, you know, I didn't do it so like, oh, everyone's gonna be my best friend and they're all gonna be my customer one day. I did it because that was a way for me to branch out and I didn't have and bootstrap uh, my networking. But if one of those developed into a, a big tree for me, which many of them did down the road, it was a good investment. So um, I've taken that philosophy now with social media and, and, and it's a lot easier email list, et cetera. But I'll, I'll say one thing. The universe looks at a handwritten letter different than they do an e it does an email. To write a letter, get a stamp, lick the stamp, put it on an envelope, walk it over to the mailbox, put it in, shut the mailbox. Like that, that's a lot of energy. People feel that energy a lot different than just send on an email. So I still, to this day, write handwritten letters at the end of every year to a list of about 30 to 50 people that impact me during the year. Yeah, you know, I, I I used to teach basically the same concept, but not as intense as yours, which was two a day, 10 a week, 520 a year. And and what I would say is if you if you write 520 personal handwritten notes a year in spite of yourself, no matter what, you're gonna get business from it because you're just building relationships and connections. And the name of the game is being in the forefront of people's consciousness when they have a need that you might be able to fulfill. So, like how give us an example of uh uh, let actually let's let's shift slightly and talk about 
your meeting with with Warren Buffett. I want to I want to understand that story a little bit more than I already do, which is that you had two meetings. The first one didn't go so well. Tell us what what happened and why you didn't quit. I think that's a really important important teaching. Well, I, I assume you're talking to our our private about our private jet company, yes, uh, our key jet. We had a, a private jet company. Um, I started with no experience, no business, no aviation experience, and very little money with my partner. But we had an idea, and you know, everybody's an idea away from changing their life. It's just, can you bring that idea to fruition? Does it have merit, um, etc.? And our idea was was to have a private jet card, which would give people the ability to have all the benefits of their own private plane available on short notice to pick them up anywhere in the country without having the, the hassles and the financial commitment of owning their own plane. So we were selling 25 hour kind of debit cards on airplanes. That was the concept. And we pitched this idea to Rich Santuli, who was the CEO of a company called NetJets owned by Warren Buffett, the largest private jet company in the world. And he threw us out in about 10 minutes. He was like, there's no way I'm giving you guys. He literally said, you probably didn't break a thousand on your SAT, and that bothered me. I got a 980 on my. Oh. I'm not a thousand SAT guy, but and he's like, I'm not giving you guys. You're 27 years old or whatever access to my airplanes, and we we got kicked out. But um, someone in the meet in the meeting saw something, said, you know, I, I think there's something something here, and they gave us another shot to come back with the instruction of like, you got to bring this pitch to life. You know, like you, you just explain this in a different, we real, as an entrepreneur, you know, your audience in a, in a pitch meeting, in this case, they see a lot of PowerPoints. They see a lot of, you know, the same stuff. You got to bring your stuff to, we brought in our own focus group, Tim. We brought in our own focus group at the next meeting and one by one, they stood up and said they would never buy a fraction of a plane like NetJets was selling, but they would buy a private jet card if it existed. And we got a deal and we ended up building a company that did 5 billion in sales and selling it to Warren Buffett, who's now a good friend of very close friend of my wife and a good friend of myself and our family. So, um, you know, it's not, it's, uh, there's a lot of ways to get to the finish line. Sometimes we just look at like, this is the path. And if there's a big roadblock in the path, we like, Oh, it interrupts everything. I always felt like there's 50 ways I can get to the finish line. You know, I don't know what they all are right now, but if, if the first one doesn't work, I'm not going to give up. I'm going to go to the other, you know, a, another lane. And that's what happened with the jet company. That's what's happened in everything in my life. That's what happens in ultra marathons when you run a hundred mile race, you know, it never goes as planned. That's what happens as a parent. It never goes as planned. In a marriage, it never goes exactly the way they wrote it. They drew it up. In illness, in health, it, it's, there's always a monkey wrench. Um, but there's, there's, there's multiple ways to solve those problems. Yeah. And it's like, it's so fascinating how the human mind works, right? Like people have a, a challenge that they can't overcome. And then the, the natural tendency is to just view that as failure. And in many cases quit, or you could look at it like, oh, okay, that's the one, one of the paths that doesn't work. Let's try a new one, right? Like, I mean, that's an option too, is just shift to, and, and look at that as a learning experience for course correction, right? Or, or look at an example of, you know, you always hear if someone gets diagnosed with something, they say, well, you know, the odds are 4%. And you say, well, show me the four people that have beaten this. You know, what do they do differently? And show me that gives people hope. And if you have hope, you have everything. 
you know, I remember when I was starting out and I was 21 years old, 20, I was 22 years old, something like that, 22, 23. And I was on a, a, a trip over Christmas vacation in Jamaica. And I was in the ocean and I, my friend, it was over the holidays. And my friend said, I just got my holiday bonus for the year. Uh, oh, what'd you get? And he goes, I got 3 million bucks. And I was like, I, I, I could not believe that someone that I knew was a millionaire. I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe this guy in particular got 3 million bucks. And I, it was like the first millionaire that I ever met ever in my life. You know, maybe there are guys in my town, parents, I'm sure, whatever, but like that I, a friend of mine was a millionaire and I just, it completely changed my life because I was like, if Rich is a, his name is Rich. If Rich, Rich was a millionaire, is a millionaire, and I'm making, th I'm making $35,000 a year at that time. I made $35,000 a year until I was 27. How come I can't be? And I started saying like, I'm a millionaire walking in to my office, to my partner, but we're millionaires, they haven't paid us yet. I started believing that like that in my path. Let me tell you something. There's, I don't know if anybody listening here knows how many millionaires there are in this country, but there's 18 million roughly. So if you look at adults over 25, there's, nine, there's 190 roughly million Americans over 25. So that's about one in 11. One in 11 adults are millionaires. And when you think of 18 million, that's a lot. That's a lot. There's not 18 million people smarter than, every, than, you, than li those listening to this show. There's not 18 million people more talented than me or Tim or you or whatever. They just figured out how to do it and realized like, it's not that hard, you know? And, but that barrier of like, oh, like we never grew up with money. Our family doesn't have this. We're not good athletes. We're not, that, that talk track makes you believe like it's not attainable. Once I realized that like, oh my God, someone in my circle can do it. The floodgates open. The floodgates open. Your, your, your boy, Chad, Wright, Your friend, Chad, Wright Talks about this, the power of the spoken word, right? Like, I mean, like you're speaking to that right now. Like if you start to verbalize what you can't do, you're going to fulfill that prophecy. And if you start to verbalize what you can do and what is possible and look at things through that lens, your brain is going to seek solutions. that are going to get you there. Um, I let, I want to, I want to talk about fear as leverage for a minute. Um, I, I've heard you say that uh, one of the best ways to accomplish a goal is to create massive accountability by putting yourself out there on social media. I mean, you've done some pretty crazy stuff since I've been following you on Instagram. I mean, ice baths with Wim Hof and Ultraman. Congratulations. You just finished a, a hundred mile race not long ago. Um, what's some wisdom that you can share about that, about how you create leverage for yourself to, to hit and accomplish goals, both in business and in your personal life that might be really valuable for people to hear and, and adopt? Well, there's a ton of research around the fact, uh, around the fact that you're more likely to have hit a goal if it has a definitive date, target date on it. That's why, you know, look at the marathon completion rate in this country is about 98%. And, you know, most people say I'm running the New York marathon on this date. They tell the world that they're doing it. Now there's accountability and they put a lot of pressure on themselves. Um, you know, we always say pressure is a privilege. Um, I've always found that by having a definitive date and letting people know like, hey, I'm doing Ultraman on this date um, and having that pressure and fear is an incredible motivator, you know, as opposed to, hey, I'll do a marathon one day, you know, like that never works. 
that never works. So I'm a big put a flag in the ground guy and then figure it out. Sign up for the race, then figure it out. Don't try to figure it out and then decide if you're going to sign up for the race. Start the business without it being the perfect time, without having enough experience, you know, as opposed to waiting for the right time or waiting till you have enough experience. That never works, uh, ever. It's never the right time and you never have a, enough experience. Let me share something with you. And you know this, Tim, but time is undefeated, right? Time is undefeated. Um, the only way that you can beat time, even remotely compete with time, is to take action. So when I was in my 20s, my mother wanted to go to England. Her life dream was to go to England, take our family, and stay in a castle. I said, Mom, I got to work. I'm in my 20s. Like, I got to make some money. I'm 20. I, I can't do it now. In my 30s, I had a job. I'm too busy, Mom. I'm building Marquee Jet. In my 40s, I had a family, and I was raising my kids. Like, I couldn't go. My son is one year old. I can't go to London. In my 50s, my mom can't go. So I can never get that back. Time beat me. I can never go back and do that. That dream of my mother's, is it's completely gone. If I would have gone in my 20s when it wasn't the right time, when it wasn't the right enough, whatever, and done that, no matter what happened to my mom, no matter what happened to my dad, no matter what happened to me, no matter COVID, no matter what happened in the world, time can't strip me of, have, of, of that moment. They can't, it can't take away things that you've done on your life resume. Once you have it, it's an ink spot. It's not coming off. So the only way that you can beat time is to take action. And I find that most people live life in routine. They're so comfortable in their day-to-day -day routine and they have no relationship with time. Zero. They think they have forever. That's why you know, I know you do these exercises all the time with your group where you bring people in and you have your graveyard, you write your tombs, you do all this amazing stuff. What that, but, but most people don't think they're going to die anytime soon. If they did, they'd have their graveyard plot picked out. I'm sure 99% of the listeners don't. I'm not even sure if you do, Tim. They give all their passcodes to their significant other. So in case something happened, here's my Instagram password. Here's this password. They'd be responsible. But no one thinks it's going to happen anytime soon. I'm invincible. I'm not, I'm not going anywhere tomorrow. Until you really understand that, well, like you, people that get diagnosed with cancer and stuff, they didn't wake up last week. They didn't think they were going to get diagnosed with cancer. They didn't think they were going to get in a car accident. You know, people, I'm sure Kobe didn't believe he was going to get in a helicopter crash. And, you know, um, until you understand that at any given moment, everything can get taken away you're not really operating with true urgency. You think you have the luxury of time. And, you know, it's a simple concept, but many people don't grasp. I operate with insane urgency. I don't defer races if I'm, if I'm not trained. If I was under-trained, Ultraman that I just did is a 6.2-mile is a open water swim, a 260-mile bike ride, and a 52.4-mile run. I was grossly under-trained. I called the coach friend of mine, Chris Howe, and I'm like, Chris, should I defer to next year so I can have a good experience, so I don't get hurt, so I can be prepared and enjoy it and complete it? He was like, absolutely not. The race was in 14 days. He's like, you go and you do it, and you do the best you can, and you learn from it. Who the hell knows what's going to happen next year? And he was right, and I finished it. We don't defer. There's no guarantees about next year. You know, you might not have your business all figured out. You might not have 
be, be trained for the race. You might not be ready for your speech 100%, but we don't defer. Because and I've so, seen, you know, seen so many people over the years that I coach that prepare to sell. They're constantly preparing to sell. And I'm like, sell. Sell and, and, and get out there and learn. And I think that's because of fear, right? Like perfectionism gets in the way of, of people taking chances. They don't want to look like they're, they're ill-prepared or ill-equipped. They don't want to fail. They haven't figured out how to manage failure. Um, so I, I want to talk about Goggins for a minute, um, just briefly. Like, I guess my question is, my initial question was, do you ever freak out? Like, do you ever like put the stake in the ground and go, I'm doing this. And then you get close to it and you're like, why did I commit to this? Like, I'm like, I'm not ready for it, or I'm worried that I'm not going to do well. I mean, I, I think that kind of happened with, with you living with him, right? Like it was more intense than you expected. And, and if that's the case, like what's your process in those moments for working through that fear, that worry, that, uh, that freezing up, if that happens to you, et cetera. I mean, I think about that all the time. I put myself in situations where I say I'm in over my head. You know, I question myself, if everything from writing a book, you have a commitment to the publisher to deliver a book and now you have to deliver it. And it's not easy to do that. And there's moments where you're like, I'm not qualified. This isn't good. This isn't good writing. This isn't funny. This isn't informative. And you second guess it all the time. I've been that way in races. I've been that way in relationships, you know? Of every like all of us, right? Like we we have I wouldn't say imposter syndrome, but fear of what the result's going to be, or if we're good enough, or whatever. Um, the way that I tend to deal with that kind of stuff, if I feel like what the hell did I get myself into, is rather than think about retreating, which is the natural tendency, we're wired to retreat. I kind of go right into it. Like I'm in the, when I'm in the storm, I always realize that if I keep going, I'm going to, it's going to end, you know? And by the way, I, like Ultraman's a really good example. It was hard, man, like really hard. And I, I was, I said to myself, the human body is amazing. If you push, it will respond. If you push it, it will respond. But I said to myself, I'm willing to suffer for these 30 hours of the race, because those 30 hours are gonna give me 40 years, 40 years. I don't know what, how many hours that is, but I can do quick math, 40 times 24, 6,000 times um, 40 times, you know, that's like a quarter of a million hours for a 30 hour investment. I'm willing to suffer those 30 hours for 40 years of having this on my life resume, having this moment of going through the finish line. That was something I, that, that I was willing to do. I was willing to, to sacrifice the eight years. It takes about eight years to build a brand in this, company, in this country. When I went to Coca-Cola with Zico, the president of Coke, I'll never forget, it's gonna take you eight years to build this brand. That's like on average what it takes to take something from idea to like a real brand. I was willing to invest those eight years in my 30s to have my 40s, 50s, 60s, and 70s to do whatever I want to do. So I've always, it's always a long-term approach, you know, outlook for that, that short-term pain, that storm that we all go through. 
um, let me let me let me put this in perspective. This is going to sound crazy, Tim. I'm going to take a shot at this. If you took the best athletes in the world, LeBron James, uh, Patrick Mahomes, uh, Michael Jordan in his prime, um, the, the best of the best, they would beat me in every single physical thing in a gym. They could lift more than me. They could beat me in a 50-yard dash. They beat me in the mile. They do more squats than me. They could slam dunk a basketball. I can't do any of that. If we raced in a 100-mile run, I'd beat them all. I'm 54 years old. I, beat, I would beat every single person in the NBA right now in a 100-mile run, all of them. I'm convinced of it. Because when you go to the long game, when you look at in the long game, everything evens out. All those skills and strengths that they have, it goes to more like, can you endure? Are you gritty? Can you troubleshoot? Will you stay in it long enough? And I will. Now they have those skills too. They have that, that ability too. But I've done that. I, I know I can do that. It's like, do you understand what I'm saying? Like- I do, I do. It's, it's a fast- ship is that 100 mile run. It's that-, that like, yeah. It's, it's that they're amazing for 48 minutes. Put them out there for, for a, you know, a 20, it's a different skill set. It's still athletics, but it's completely different. And I've been able to pivot to that point in my brain where like, you know, I can handle that big overwhelming picture that, that you know, what's the, by breaking it down into digestible bites. What's the first thing I have to do? What's the next thing I have to do? I'm really good at compartmentalizing these overwhelming things. I'm gonna start a private jet company. Tim, I, I was a kiddie pool attendant four years before that. I'm gonna start a private jet company. That sounds so insane. I have no experience. I have no friends that are rich. I have like, what are you talking about? Well, what's the first thing we have to do? Get Department of Transportation approval. All right, let's get a lawyer that specializes in that. What's the next thing we have to do? Let's get someone that specializes in that. I'm really good at taking these massively, you know, impossible tasks, Ultraman, and breaking them down into digestible, bite-sized things and going through the journey. And that's so I'm hearing, not easy. I'm hearing two things here that are important takeaways for the listener. Number one is that in a, in a moment of challenge, of difficulty, of second guessing, you're doing something critically important, which is you're shifting the internal narratives from the current fear and pain and struggle that I'm having to the reward that is available if I fight through it. That's a very important piece to what you're saying is that the narrative, internal narrative is now going to, I'm going to have 40 years of this on my life resume. Um, you're shifting to the carrot you know, that, that, that is available. The second thing that I'm hearing you say is in those moments of overwhelm that and Chad talks about this too, when it comes to running, which is what he learned as a seal. Uh, and I'm sure you do this in your running as well, is that it's, it's the inverse, right? Like you can, if you look way too far ahead, you can get overwhelmed and that's when you need to break it down to the bite sized steps of, I need to go get my business license. I need to develop a business plan. I need to hire a personal assistant. That's what, you know, narrowing the focus at times can help reduce the overwhelm of the grandness of what you're looking at doing. So let's, I'm going, I want to go back to the stake in the ground and thank you for that excellent share on that. So 
you play life on the offense. This is one of the things that like, man, every time I interview you, I'm like, man, he and I are like kinship in that regard. Like I do the same and I've just naturally done it, but you do a really extraordinary job with your calendar. And, you know, you're, you're the, you know, the, the owner of the calendar club, which is an incredible program that everybody listening to this podcast should listen look into and sign up for. Um, what are some of the tricks that you have found are really effective with the managing of your calendar to create that urgency, to get out of the laziness and to ensure that you take action, rock and roll with that one. You mean just the action part of it? Just tell us about your calendar, bro. Like, I think it's so important for people to hear yeah. about what you do, how it's visual, it's big yeah. and what you put in there every year and your Masogis and all that stuff. I feel like most of us play life on defense. Our calendars fill up with other people's requests for time. You know, our calendars fill up with Zoom calls and meetings and weddings. And, and I'm a big believer in playing life on offense and scheduling your life before your meetings. And I have a system. I'll share that system with you in a second. But, um, you know, it's really hard as we get older to create newness because we live in routine. Like, how do you, how do you introduce newness into your life? For real. How do you even introduce newness? You know, you wake up, you work, you work out, you have dinner. You have something on the weekend. Maybe you belong to a country club. Like, where does the newness come from? You have to schedule it. You have to aggressively put newness into your life. You know, Gandhi said it best. Live like you're going to die tomorrow. Learn like you live forever. You got to continue to, to learn and challenge yourself. So what I do is I have this big visual calendar. It's a, I can even show it to you. Here it is. I didn't even know you're going to tell me this. Tim, this is, this is actually a calendar. It's called the big ass calendar and it opens up and this is my entire year schedule and it's color coded for different trips and things that I'm going to do. And all I do is follow the script. So what I do is I, there's two parts to how I plan, plan my year at a high level. I think about all the things that I want to do. One-on-one um, -on -one trips I take with my kids. I take one one-on-one -on -one trip with all my kids that goes on my calendar. I have date nights once a week with my wife every Wednesday, goes on my calendar. Um, I take my kids out of school for a secret lunch, goes on my calendar. Spring break, the trips, all that stuff I plan. I take my wife and I go away every quarter for a staycation or something, goes on my calendar. So I have those fundamental things. But here is the backbone of what I think is the best planning, life planning, life resume building system on the planet. I do two things. And if you do this, anybody listening, you're in your 40s, even if you're in your 70s, it'll be a game changer. And if you did everything the same that you did last year, but just added these two things, it'll be life-changing. The first thing is there's an old Japanese ritual called the Misogi. And the notion around a Misogi is you do one, I'm taking the liberty to tweak it a little bit, but you do one year-defining thing every year. So you should be able to go back if I were to ask you guys, guys and girls, men and women listening to this, what did you do in 2011? What did you do in 2017 that was big? What was your big event last year? You should be able to rattle them off. Well, hello friends, and I hope that you're enjoying this episode of the 360 Experience Podcast. To listen to the remainder of this episode, please visit us at The Loan Atlas where you will also find the most comprehensive resource for mortgage professionals to build their practice, backed by the greatest faculty that's ever been assembled in the mortgage industry. Check us out at the link below or go to 
theloanatlas.com. Look forward to having you as a guest on our next episode of the 360 Experience Podcast.